Well, thank you, worship team, and good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me in your Old Testaments to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. And if you're using the uh, Bibles we provide, that'd be page 769. 769. There is a quote I have always appreciated, and uh, I know I've shared it before, but I want to help direct our minds today to the issues of God's grace and God's glory. Theodore Minode said, 1874, The single object of our life is the glory of God. If we do not make it the supreme goal of our efforts, we must deprive ourselves of His help. For His grace is only at the service of His glory. If, on the contrary, it is His glory that we seek above all, then we can always count on His grace. His grace is at the service of His glory. God's grace kicks in when we want Him to be on display. The flip side would be that when we want to be on display, we want approval, God's hand is is silent. I'm I'm quite sure that... uh, Most of us here this morning want God to use us. We want God to use us in our families. We want God to be at work when we pray. When we engage in some ministry that He's he's put on our hearts, we want God to be at work. And so the question we have to be asking is this. Do I want Him to be on display? Or do I just want what I want? Because His grace is only at the service of His glory. And that's pretty much the sermon today, so if you have a lot to do today, no, please stay around. Ezra, the people in the story we have been following from the book of Ezra and now Haggai, have just come back from exile in Babylon to the land of Israel. And God has been at work. He sent them for a single purpose, and that was to come back and rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. God was in the process of blessing him, but the center point would be, will you glorify me as you come together, build the temple, and begin to worship me as I had intended? But after starting that project, they had delayed it. They had stopped building for a number of reasons for some 15 years. So we really are continuing our study of the book of Ezra. So why are we in the book of Haggai? Because in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we're told that after this 15-year delay, God sent the prophet Haggai, verse 1, Ezra 5. Verse 2, they kept going on the building. It, It worked. So wouldn't you like to know what Haggai told the people of Israel that restarted this project? That's what we have in the book of Haggai. Last week, we saw that indeed after uh, confronting and rebuking them because they were focused on building their own houses, that had become their excuse, and they did not go back to rebuilding the temple. They got going again. That was the first message, and it was effective. The second message is what we find in chapter 2. 
And we find that they need more encouragement to keep going. And God says, no matter how discouraged you are, I am with you. And here's why. We both want the same thing. God, God wants his own glory. They wanted his glory. And when God's, God wants his glory and we want his glory, now our purposes align. And that's when God kicks in with his power and his grace. Verse 1, chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of all the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house, temple, in its former glory? That would be the time of Solomon. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's start with the date. It is significant to what's going on here. Verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, this, this pep talk from God comes following up the beginning of this rebuilding project. We know it's a month later because if you look at the last couple of verses of chapter 1, middle of verse 14, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So it's almost a month later that a second message comes from God through Haggai the prophet. But this isn't just any day. This is a day that every Jew who would read this in years to come would recognize as the last day of one of their three major feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's, the, that's what happened on the 21st day of the seventh month in the Jewish calendar every year. The Feast of Tabernacles was that time when God says, I want you to continually every year think back to how I delivered your ancestors a thousand years ago almost from Egypt. And so part of this great feast is you're going you're to set up these temporary shelters, tabernacles, and live in them, basically camp in them, to bring to mind how I got you out of Egypt and you lived out there in the wilderness in tents, setting them up, taking them down, setting them up, taking them down. Thursday night, I think it was, a person I drove through Upper Lake Park, and this was this uh, camp-out night. I don't know if some of you saw that or were involved in that. A bunch of people were, were camping in Upper Lake Park. and you know, it's, it's, it's kind of special until it gets to be 40 years long, and then it's not so much. But I'm pretty sure this was a very special time, the Feast of Tabernacles, when they got together and they did this for seven days, remembering we were once in this state, and now here we are, established in the land, and God has blessed us again, and so forth. Well, that seven days would culminate on the 21st day of the seventh month. In fact, it was called the Great Day of the Feast. It's mentioned in John chapter 7, verse 37, when it says, Jesus stood up on that last day, the great day of the feast. It has reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when he proclaimed how he could provide them living water. They had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles 15 years before this, if you can recall a couple of weeks ago in our study. They had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the first of the three major feasts that they engaged in after they got back to the land. They built an altar. Then they 
waited for that first feast in that first year, and they celebrated it, even though they had only laid out the foundation of the temple. So we know they had celebrated it once. What comes to my mind is this question. What about those 15 years when they had delayed continuing the project? Did they keep celebrating it when they knew they weren't doing what God had called them to do? My suspicion is, there's no mention, my suspicion is that they didn't. There's, there's a sense in which you and I will, will draw away from worship when we know we're living in disobedience or delay. In fact, what we studied last week is that the issue of procrastination is that delayed obedience is disobedience. Your mom tells you to clean the room, you don't clean the room, and she's waiting. That's disobedience. And so this delayed obedience was disobedience, so we don't know if they celebrated it. But I guess that this time, though Haggai doesn't mention it, he mentions the key date. I assume they resumed the, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles because for now almost a month they had gone back to obeying and doing what God had asked them to do. So on this day, the message of God comes through Haggai and he, he, he highlights Zerubbabel, the governor and project leader, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the spiritual leader, and then he says, and everybody else, here I am a month later and I am urging you to keep going. Now comes the hard part. Now comes the issue of spiritual persistence. If in uh, the last months God's touched your heart about some new season of life spiritually that you're facing, some new decision, some new commitment, some new effort that you sense God wants you to make, it is great to get started but you can assume it'll be tested. It's like New Year's resolutions, right? They all seem really great January 1 when you're kind of stuffed from overeating. I just, this year I'm going... <laughs> but you, you get hungry about the second, third week of January. And, and so it's going to be tested if you have made some new commitment. So, so God shows up here and says, keep listening. The way, the way we... Keep commitments is to stay connected to God personally, stay connected to God personally through His Word, stay connected to God personally through His Word as we're with God's people, and then God works within us to create a persistence. There was some discouragement going on. Did you catch that in verse 3? Haggai says, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? We, uh, we encountered this when we were in Ezra, chapter 3. As the people first returned and first began to lay that foundation at that day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, let's, let's go back and review what had happened some 15 years earlier. And all the people, these are the exiles, they've come back, they started rebuilding. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's what they came to do. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, they could remember Solomon's grand temple before it was destroyed when the Babylonians came. When they saw the first, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. That was kind of an awkward time, wasn't it? 
Because everybody is celebrating what God is doing, but some people going, this looks nothing like Solomon's temple. Did we really come back to build this? It's possible that Haggai himself was older, the prophet, and had seen this. Uh, As you read verse 3, it's like Haggai is identifying with the group that knew what that was like. What do you think, old-timers? We know this is not really as nice as the old one, right? We looked a couple weeks ago at this uh, artist's conception of what Zerubbabel's temple might have been like, a basic structure, the, the right size and the altar and everything, all the things, holy place and holy, is all there. And by comparison, artists try to picture what Solomon had built, and there, there really like is no comparison except the, the, the size and scale of the, the temple proper. But there wouldn't be the, the side buildings. There wouldn't be the ornamentation. There wouldn't be the gold overlay. There wouldn't be as much cedar. There wouldn't be as much carving. It just would seem mediocre. And so it could be discouraging to hear the older people say, you know, it's nothing like it used to be. But Haggai says, who's left that remembers that? Because there were some. But as we take a look at a timeline, we'll see there were not very many by this time. A little bit of review to get a, get a chronological perspective. This is, the, this is what's happening in the world. There are Babylonian kings, and then the Persia took over, and so some of these names we'll recognize in the scriptures. A little bit of review. There were three times that in, in judgment of God, the Babylonians came in and deported people out to Babylon. There was a 70-year captivity you may have heard of. The 70 years are counted from the first time they brought, they exiled people and took them off to Babylon. And it goes until what we begin to study at the opening of the book of Ezra, the return of Zerubbabel with those 50,000 who God ordained to come back. And so the 70 years were complete. And as, as the rubble comes back, they lay the foundation, the temple begins. But then we saw this delay. And 15 years later, nothing more was done. Until what? Until what we've seen in Ezra 5, or now in the book of Haggai last week. Haggai comes and declares, God wants you to keep going. Get going on this. And the temple resumes. So, in Ezra chapter 3, where there were some who were weeping, that's these guys. How old were they? Well, if they had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed in 586, they had to be a minimum, the youngest of them would be 60. So you're talking about 60 to 70 year olds who had made the four month, 900 mile journey from Persia back. They're healthy enough to do that. So there were some who were weeping. Fifteen years have passed, however. And so as Haggai is talking to those who says, so how many are left who, who are still feeling that way? Now we're over here. So if they were 60 to 70 year olds, then they're now 75 to 85 year olds who are there. How many would be left? Not, not a whole lot is the point. Side note, if you're interested in, in uh, the timeline, this one, or a few weeks ago, I forgot to mention there are some copies on the back table. But, but the point was, of, of, of Haggai, he says, I don't want you to compare the temples. The comparison of the temples is not 
what matters. Don't compare. It is a spiritually dangerous thing to compare. Because kind of our negativity sometimes take over when we compare. And we can either compare because we're prone to pride. We can compare because we're prone to insecurity. Everybody's, everything else is better than what I got. Right? Comparison is a spiritual danger. I'd like to, take, I'd like to say, focus on this a little bit about some of the comparisons that they were tempted to and those that we might be. Here's one. This is very much what they were facing. Comparing with the past. Don't compare with the past. Don't assume the past was more spiritual. Don't limit God today. So those who were weeping and thinking about how much better Solomon's temple was, like, let's think about it. What was the spiritual climate of Israel when that beautiful temple was standing? It was terrible. That's why God allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy the temple and take the people to exile. So you're really weeping over the temple? When in fact, this is a time of spiritual encouragement. The temple appearance doesn't matter. Don't compare with the past. I think sometimes it's we who are older who thinks that somehow the old days were better spiritually. I get that. I remember being a teenager in the 60s and 70s. A church kid, Christian young kid. And there was this sense that because of the turbulent time, Culture and morality was going down the tubes in the 60s and 70s, if you remember. And so there was this sense that, oh, the good old days, spiritually. And yet, you know what? God was at work in teenagers then. Most of you who are a little bit older were probably teenagers in the 60s and 70s, right? And though, yes, the culture was, was hippies and drugs and free love and all that, the culture was going down, yet God had, was doing amazing work in teenagers then. Now we're called baby boomers, right? Now we're, now we're the older group. Do we not have confidence that God is at work today in our young people? And that he will be faithful and do fresh, powerful things in spite of another deep dive that our culture is making morally and every other way. Do not have confidence that God can and is at work doing it. Don't compare with the past. Don't compare appearances. Don't assume smaller or less impressive public ministries are less effective. They're all supposed to worship God in this mediocre-looking temple they're building. Don't compare church or ministries by building size or appearance. In 1934... There was a series of evangelistic meetings in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, there was a 16-year-old kid who grew up in a Christian home but had resisted God in his life and uh, had not come to faith in Christ. But uh, there were people praying for him. He didn't go to those meetings. They, they, meetings lasted several weeks. Some evangelist that none of us would ever know or had heard of and finally, this young man went to the meetings, and after a few meetings, he came to a point of putting his faith in Christ. Unknown evangelist, but this boy came to Christ. His name was Billy Graham. 
in his autobiography, I think is where this occurs, is his copy of, of the decision card that night. Being convinced that I'm a sinner and believing Christ died for me, I now receive him as my personal Savior, and with his help I purpose confessing him before men. Billy Graham, November 1, 1934. Billy Graham tells how his dad had been at a prayer meeting about six months before this of some Christian businessmen who were praying. And in that prayer meeting, Billy Graham's dad recalled this man praying this, praying that out of Charlotte, North Carolina, the Lord would raise up someone to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. God answered that man's prayer. One man, unknown, not impressive, But that fervent prayer was answered and Billy Graham went on to preach in person to an estimated 215 million people in crusades and who knows how many others by TV and media of the day. Impressive is not more spiritual. I think we know that. If God does some some mighty things through open door, it won't be because we got new carpet and built a nice addition. It'll because, be because one person or ten people or a hundred of us prayed that God would use us mightily in some way. Don't compare the past. Don't compare appearances. Don't compare popularity. Don't assume that the popularity of my personal ministry determines its impact. Thinking going from the, the, the public or the group ministries to personal ministries because uh, many times I think people struggle with personal ministries compared to others especially sometimes in the church in which you're a part of you can, it can seem like others are you know doing more more recognized God has given open door a lot of very uh, gifted people who are very good at what they do that, that makes things effective some will be better known than others some will have more outgoing personalities than others some will get more um, uh, credit than others. There's a spiritual danger of comparison. Don't be discouraged by the poison of comparison. Just think of what did Almighty God give me to do and what might He do through me? Because His grace is always at the service of His glory, His power is engaged when I want to give Him. The glory. Discouragement of comparison was one thing that Haggai knew and God knew the people were struggling with. Here's another one, though, as you look at verse, what we saw in verse 4. Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, O Joshua, be strong, people, be strong, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, We will see when we return back to Ezra chapter 6 in a few weeks that indeed there was opposition. And these Samaritans who were the local neighbors and didn't want the project to continue would write malicious, lying, threatening letters back to the king of Persia. And so there was an element of fear. And so God steps in and says, that's no reason to quit. Be strong, be strong, be strong. In fact, uh, 
The Hebrew term is in a grammatical form that doesn't just mean be strong, but be stronger. Cause yourself to grow in strength. It's a progressive kind of word. The idea is you can, you can always be more courageous than you are right now. Don't ever say this is just who I am. You can always become spiritually more courageous than you are right now. Not, you might not be able to get stronger physically than you are right now. There are limitations. But spiritually we can become more courageous and stronger as life progresses. Why? Because I'm with you. Says the Lord Almighty. Uh, some translations use the word the Lord of hosts. Uh, probably a little more accurate. Uh, it's, it's a warrior term. It's picturing God, this name for God, pictures him as the top of the warriors. If you, if you, if you, if you build the, the, the chart, he is, at the, he is the top warrior in charge of all the warriors. And that's the one. So you're thinking about your opposition. You have the, the head omniscient, omnipotent, powerful warrior on your side. And he will fight for you. That's why you don't have to be afraid of opposition. But specifically, verse 4 says, the time in which you will notice that he is with you is when you work. God is with you when you are serving him for his glory because his grace is always at the service of his glory. It's like having a mighty engine in the car and you can sit there and listen to it go, you know, accelerate and it's doing nothing until it's engaged. Now the power is being used, and it's as we are at work serving him that we experience his power. So work. Be more faithful. Grow in courage. If you're, if you're a kid's build teacher this fall, study a little sooner, study a little harder. Get to know your kids a little more personally. If you're on some serving list, take it more seriously. Put it on your calendar so you don't forget. Come prepared and prayed up so that you will be an encouragement, not just filling a slot. If you're on the worship team, come prepared, not with just your skills, but praying that God would use this time of worship to draw our hearts upward. If, if you have a burden, you've been noticing a neighbor, take courage and do the next thing to grow that relationship so that you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, take more courage. Keep at it. Why? I'm with you. And the presence of God should transform the way we go about that. Because of God's promise, verse 5. Promises, verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I know your issue is fear. Do not fear. And so God wants to t remind them of the resource that he is since he is with them. And so he takes them back not just decades. Just decades have been in the, in the, in the context about you know the other temple. And he says, no, let me take you back 900 plus years to when I brought you out of Egypt in 1440-something B.C., 
I made a covenant, I made a promise I'd be with you if you would go into the land and establish worship there. This is the land I gave you and I gave it to you so you would worship me for your glory. And that's, why, that's how I got you here. My grace is at the service of your glory. That's why all this has gotten accomplished. So it's not just about decades. It's not, not about whether you're a 30-year-old here today, Haggai says, or whether you're an 80-year-old here today. Let's think back to how I have been controlling the past of all your ancestry to get you to this place. Do you realize God is sovereign over your past? That God has orchestrated everything in your life to get you to this place right now. So, Ephesians 1.1 He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so He always knew it would be us and what our name would be and where we would be. And if He's brought you to faith in Christ He had that planned. He knew who was going to marry who or who was going to just hook up with who so this would happen and this would happen and this would happen and there would be you. And that you would then be here at this point in your life. God is sovereign over our past. Why? So he can, we can glorify him in our future. So Haggai says, please open door. Please, Israel. Please fill in your name. Realize I have guided you to this point. Can you obey me from this point? I got you here, and I'll take you to the next place. Why? Because my spirit remains among you. That's why you don't have to fear. The spirit there is capital S. That's the Holy Spirit. My spirit remains in your midst or among you. Do you know that that is technically not a valid promise today? God's spirit is not among us as believers today. God's spirit is where? In us. Since Acts chapter 2, even this incredible promise has been upgraded. In the Old Testament, he was among them. It was the power of God at work. But starting in Acts 2, every believer in Christ now has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. And that's why they had a temple then, and we don't have one today. He was among them. Now who's the temple? Now where's the temple? (laughs) No, who's the temple? We are the temple. Individually, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Corporately, the church is the temple of God in which Christ, dwell, in which the Spirit dwells. He, he abides within us. And if they could serve God courageously in spite of their fear because God, the Spirit, was among them, how much more true is it that we can serve Him without fear because He is within us? We're going to face situations, if, we, if you pursue Obedience to Christ, serving Christ as he directs you. You will face situations in which you don't know what to do. And you will feel inadequate. And it will be about your child or your feelings or difficult people or fears or or fill in the blank. It will be a spiritual battle. And Paul in, in Ephesians 6 said, as he concluded the spiritual armor, he says, be praying in the spirit all the time for everybody. Because it's only the Spirit who is going to engage my power. So when God's grace is at the service of His glory, it's the Spirit who is empowering that. And it's because of His glory we now see. And that's where He's taking this passage. Verse 6. This is what the Lord says. Lord of hosts says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, 
says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. So, so warrior number one is with you for the glory of God. Verse 6, I'll shake the heavens, earth, sea, land, verse 7, and nations. Uh, verse 6 seems to be like a sweeping statement of the nature of God, just as we sang a couple of songs about the greatness of God over all things. He's, he's establishing that in verse 6, that I can do whatever I want in the entire universe, period. Including, then, verse 7, I shake nations. That's a refreshing reminder if, you've, if you remember fearing communism more than maybe today. If you remember uh, Twin Towers going down and we fear terrorism or if you fear North Korea, if you fear whatever nation you fear, you don't need to. God shakes nations. No nation is a match for him. Verse 7, though, gets very specific, um, interesting, and a bit complicated to understand. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come. That phrase is, if you're reading a different translation than mine, you are likely going to see something different. The desired of the nations. I, I use a, a website, BibleGateway.com, usually have it up uh, during the week as I study. It nicely lays out multiple versions. And so I have the four versions that I think are most used uh, among us. And uh, as I was looking up that verse this week, every single one of those four versions had this phrase translated differently. Mine says, the desired of nations. One translation has desire capitalized, the desire of nations, uh, interpreting this to be a personal reference to Christ, which is a, a, a that, that's their interpretation. Uh, one of them says the treasures of the nations. One says the wealth of the nations. The term in the Hebrew language is, is uh, precious things. And the way it's virtually always, in fact, this would almost be the only exception, it's always used of material wealth. Jewels, silver, gold, things that people regard as precious that you can receive, pay for things, store and it is, it is most likely it's being used as a material or money word here as well. Why? Because that's what the context says, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So it seems to interpret itself that it really is talking about, I will shake the heavens and the wealth of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. And to realize that they actually did need money to be able to complete the building project of the temple. So God in verse 6 is saying, I can do anything in the entire universe anytime I want to. And so verse 7 to be saying, and when I need money for something, I just shake it. And I shake the nations and it comes. I shake the money tree. We all said to our kids, money doesn't grow on trees. God, for God it does. 
I was thinking this week about uh, how we used to shake the mulberry trees. Uh, one piece of land my dad has it uh, had, a mul- had a mulberry tree for many years and one abandoned barn and it was a, it was a great mulberry tree and so we get some of uh, uh, mom's old blankets and we'd lay them out underneath there and then I could crawl up there with a two by four or a baseball bat and just start hitting all, crawl all around the tree, knock those branches and all this wealth <laughs> would fall into the blankets and, and we'd eat all we want and get our faces all purple and take the rest home to mom and she would make mulberry pie. Great memory. Could God do that to provide? That's exactly what he did. Let's, let's follow the money trail about this temple project. How God supplied. First of all, back when they were in Babylon, Persia, the Persian neighbors gave to departing Israelites. This is where we started this study in Ezra 1. When Cyrus said, the king, when Cyrus said, I commission you to go back and rebuild the temple, he actually said, and everybody who lives around you is supposed to give you things. All their neighbors, they obeyed, assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts. So the, peop- the neighbors gave these 50,000 people, the heads of families or whoever, a bunch of stuff. Now it was the personal property of all those people who came to Israel. Then they arrive in Israel. And the Israelites give voluntarily to the project. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 miners of silver. That's a, it's a vast sum of, of money. And then they would have to buy timber and, and do things. But that wasn't the end of it. That wasn't, that wasn't evidently all they needed to, to do this great project. So there's a 15-year delay we've seen. They restart. Persecution comes. And this is a little bit of a spoiler alert for some future studies. But um, when they resume work, Ezra chapter 6, the neighboring Samaritans complain and write false letters back to the king 15 years later. And so King Darius says, what's this, what's this problem about? And Darius goes back and finds Cyrus's originally, original decree, and here's what it said. Here's what Cyrus had said. Let the temple be rebuilt, and the costs are, be, are to be paid by the royal treasury. We didn't even know that uh, before, earlier in Ezra. He, we knew he had told the neighbors to give. Now we find out that, in fact, he says, the royal treasury is to be used for that. So when that letter gets to him 15 years later, after he finds Cyrus' decree, he tells these complainers who came all the way over there to say, stop this project. He says, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. Oh, man. Should have never complained, right? (laughs) In fact, he goes on to say, and if you don't do that, we're going to come and tear your house down and impale you on the posts that are left. It's kind of an enforced giving plan that, uh, that he put into place. Did God really provide through shaking the nations? Oh, yeah. When God's accomplishing something for his glory, there's nothing that's going to stop it. 
God had moved throughout their 15-year process so these people would be back in the temple worshiping him. God's glory determines where he allocates his power or any other resource. And so it has been our privilege as a church through the years to see God provide for us, for our regular budget need for ministry, for our missionaries, whether it's through our budget or the individual support raising they do, and there's some great stories of how God has provided. He's provided for the major building projects that have been a part of this, and now we're experiencing that with the addition as well. It's humbling to realize that the God of the universe who spoke planets into being cares about us at Open Door Bible Church. Isn't that amazing? And he cares about your finances, your schedule, your stress, your energy, your children, whatever it is, your ministries, whatever it is that is, is on your mind right now, God's grace is at the service of his glory. Our job is to scour our heart and soul to say, is that really what I'm about? Am I about God's glory? I think about my family, time, energy, money, ministry, whatever it is. It, am I praying for what I want? Or do I pray above that for what he wants? And then my will can submit to his will. God's grace at the service of his glory. And he says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. End of verse 7. After I provide for this place so it gets built, I will fill this house with glory. There wasn't that Shekinah glory moment. How how did he fill this house, this lesser, more mediocre temple, with glory. What was the uh, what was the plan? Verse nine: The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So, if you look at the appearance, certainly it wouldn't be more glorious than Solomon's temple. Well, we know that Zerubbabel's temple existed <clears throat> up till the time of, of Christ, but it really didn't even look the same because King Herod had undertaken an, a massive expansion and beautification project of the temple. In fact, John 2, verse 20, the disciples mentioned to Jesus that this building project had been, take, had been going on for some 46 years. It was King Herod's legacy to himself, kind of a monument to himself, uh, portraying him as gracious to the Jewish people, currying their favor. That, I can't see that being this reference. That that's what this house would be glorious because of Herod's selfish project. How would this place, though, become more glorious? I think it's almost most, most certainly that Jesus would be in that place. The incarnate Son of the eternal, glorious God would come to earth and walk on those temple grounds. He would heal the sick. He would teach about the coming kingdom and the gospel. He would rebuke the Pharisees for their hypocrisy there. 
He would cleanse the temple of the money changers and he would bring his glory and Jesus said of himself, Luke eleven thirty one, one greater than Solomon is here. I think that's the greater glory. The greater glory is Jesus at his first coming and the greater glory would then, there's a, there's a leap I think that, that this prophecy is asking us to take. <clears throat> it's the greater glory because Jesus will be enthroned in Jerusalem, in the future age we call the millennium. So at his first coming and at his second coming, Jesus would fill this place by his very presence with the glory of God. No glory compares to Christ. Buildings are just buildings, temples, churches. They're just buildings. The glory of God will remain if the glory is focused on on Jesus Christ. We, we pretty much know that this is projecting into a future prophetic time because of the last phrase where he says, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. If this is about um, earthly political peace, then this phrase is a failure. Because Jerusalem has not been known for its peaceful character from the time of Haggai Till today in 2019. This has not yet been fulfilled. Will it be? Yes. Jesus, in that Christmas verse, Isaiah 9 6, is called the Prince of Peace. The next phrase says, And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Not yet. The angel at the birth of Jesus prophesied, Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Not yet. Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem on the day of the triumphal entry, many were quoting Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes. And and, and Luke tells us, Luke 19, Glory in the highest, peace in heaven. Not on earth. In a conversation with the disciples after the triumphal entry, Jesus said to them, if only they had known what makes for peace. So, it didn't happen then. The promise is still valid. Ezekiel 37, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. That hardly describes the Middle East today. But it will. He made a covenant of peace And he is going to set his sanctuary there. And if you were to take the time to read Ezekiel 40, chapters 40 through chapter 48, there is a description of a vision God gave Ezekiel in the Old Testament of a a vision then, but a literal temple that will stand in Jerusalem during the millennial age. A memorial, a celebration of the worship of God as Christ is enthroned there. We won't be in that temple, at least not in this body, because we await the rapture of Christ. We await Christ's return, and he's going to take the church to heaven. And on earth there will be this seven-year period of time, the great tribulation, ending in his, Christ's return in judgment. The first return is for believers to take us to heaven. This follow-up return is as he comes in judgment, and he establishes a thousand-year reign 
says we in some way reign with him. A thousand years, Revelation chapter 20. And so at that time, there will be this incredible temple and there will be peace on earth. Because God's grace is the service of his glory. I don't, I don't know what aspect of life um, that's most on your mind right now. Everybody's got something there, kind of taking the top shelf it's probably what you're praying about the most. The question we ask of ourselves, do I want what I want? Do I want God's glory? So, whether it's about working, whether it's about parenting, whether it's about serving, whether it's about expenses, whatever it's about, Are we asking ourselves, am I doing this for the glory of God? Because he will step in. He will engage his power. Can I close with the quote one more time? God's grace, the single object of our life, is the glory of God. If we do not make it the supreme goal of our efforts, we must deprive ourselves of his help. For his grace is only at the service of his glory. If, on the contrary, it is his glory that we seek above all, then we can always count on his grace let's pray Heavenly Father we are so much about ourselves we are uh, no matter where we see ourselves spiritually in, 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 in maturity or, or growth or we recognize that that self will self preservation self glorification it is so supernatural for us to truly want you to be on display so that people, when they see us, would be impressed with you. And so I pray you would continue that transforming work of our heart and whatever is uh, taking, taking the, the thought processes of our mind in these days, please direct us. Direct us into the future. Direct us into this next season of life for each of us so that we would be focused on your glory. For we pray it in your name. Amen.